This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans and this edition has been supported by grants from the Sylvia Wadilow Foundation and the Scottish Government. Now, everyone listens to, or at least hears, music. Well, not everyone actually. There is a neurological condition called amusia where a symphony, described in the late Oliver Sacks' excellent book Musicophilia, a symphony sounds like the clattering of pots and pans. That's not relevant to what we're talking about now, because such is the power of music to affect the way we behave that it's used in the retail industry to help us part with our money, on the battlefield, the so-called psychological operations to wear down the enemy, and even as an instrument of torture. So could music be used for our health and well-being rather than our destruction? The Scottish Music and Health Network is a collaboration between Edinburgh and Glasgow Caledonian Universities. I went along to their second Mapping the Future of Music and Health Research in Scotland conference, where I met Professor of Music Psychology and Improvisation at Edinburgh University, head of the Reed School of Music and saxophonist, Professor Raymond MacDonald. The network's funded by the Carnegie Trust. The goal is to bring together researchers, clinicians, teachers, music therapists, musicians, community musicians, anybody with an interest in the relationship between music and health and well-being. And we want to bring people together to discuss their work, discuss their ideas, and talk about the effects that musical participation can have on health. And today's focus is on developing new research. So um, it's a big challenge for the area because there's been a real huge growth and interest around the relationship between music and wider health parameters. But there's a real need for research, robust, reliable research that can shed light upon the process and outcomes of music interventions that are focused upon health and well-being. Well, you see, it doesn't take an academic genius to know that music can make you feel better and can make you feel worse. I think that's a really good point. You know, we all have an intuitive feeling, if you like, that music can, in the right circumstances, make us feel better. When you're in the car and you pick a piece of music to listen to, when you select that piece of music, you're making a number of very sophisticated psychological assessments. How do I feel right now? How do I want to feel in five minutes? What music's going to help me reach those goals? Do I want to change the mood I'm in? Do I want to enhance the mood I'm in? So yes, we are all very sophisticated consumers of music and we use music to uh, regulate our moods. But in terms of using music for wider more specific benefits. So, for example, can doctors use music to alleviate the symptoms of depression? Can listening to music and performing music help slow down cognitive deterioration for people with Alzheimer's disease? Can listening to music reduce our pain perceptions? Well, you're absolutely right that there's lots of anecdotal evidence that people feel very passionately about their music, 
there's not so much reliable scientific evidence that allows us to, on the one hand, predict the outcomes of listening to music interventions, and on the other hand, tailor particular interventions to target specific needs. And that's one of the aims of the research network, is to develop the body of research that's investigating the relationship between music listening and health outcomes so that we can predict more reliably what the effects of music might be in particular situations. Well, you took part in a survey to look into the effects of music and chronic pain. Mm -hmm. What did you find? The survey found that people who listen to music and use music more, listen to their preferred music, um, have higher quality of life measurements and um, had reduction in, in pain perceptions. This work came out of a number of studies looking at the effect of music on acute pain. Because what we found was that listening to your favourite music, for example, while undergoing haemodialysis in a hospital environment, listening to your favourite music reduced your feelings of pain in that hospital environment and reduced your feelings of anxiety. We also had another study where participants put their hands in cold water. And what we found was that listening to your favourite music people felt less pain when they had their hands in cold water. Putting your hands in cold water doesn't sound particularly painful, but actually cold water gets painful quickly. And we just simply asked people to take their hands out the water when it got too painful. But when they listened to their favourite music, they kept their hands in the water for much longer. So this was their choice of music, not yours? Yes, and that, that's a very important point for all the work that we've done looking at the effects of music on pain. The most significant results are found for the people picking their own music, listening to their preferred music. So forget about the musician in you. I'll talk mm -hmm. to the psychologist in you. What's going on? Well, I think when we listen to our favourite music, we are cognitively engaged, neurologically engaged. I mean, there's research to show now that the brain that engages with music is changed by music. When we listen to our favourite music, we may feel more, if you like, psychological control over our environment. And when we listen to our, our favourite music, we can be cognitively, emotionally distracted from a particular stimulus or distracted from other thoughts. So I think these key psychological processes are at play when we listen to our favourite music. And I suppose, looking at it from a layman's point of view, you are picking, well, I should hope, you're picking music that you like and that means something to you, whatever that means. Exactly. And that's a, a key point. So music is very subjective. No matter what emotion I want to imbue a piece of saxophone music that I'm playing, or no matter what intention a composer puts on a piece of music, the listener filters everything they hear through their own preferences, their own listening experiences, their own cultural background, their own family, educational and social uh, experiences. Therefore... All music is essentially ambiguous because we place our own meaning on it. And of course we all have uh, very strong attachments to our favourite music. That's why Desert Island Discs is such a phenomenally interesting and successful programme because we can, if you like, display our identity, our personality through our musical choices. I can say, I'm Raymond and I like these types of music and it tells you something about me and I feel very close to my my choices in music and what's interesting about that is it's not just musicians or people that are whose careers are in music but we all have a very close personal relationship with our favorite music therefore it affects us psychologically it engages us it moves us and it's a really important process Raymond McDonald 
Dr. Don Knox is a senior audio lecturer at Glasgow Caledonian University. His background is in audio technology and music analysis and processing. And he's been working with music psychologists studying the emotional effects of music on our everyday lives. There's still some significant disagreement on whether you feel genuine emotions through listening to music or we simply recognise the emotion being expressed by a piece of music. So there's still some fairly uh, theoretical discussion going on around that particular topic. But I think what's indisputable is we have an emotional connection with our favourite music uh, that makes music a very important part of our lives. In what way? Well, for a lot of people, experience is inextricably linked to their music listening preferences. So a major part of why you might prefer particular types of music or artists is linked to your experience in life and your associations with that piece of music. There are several what we may call musical and extra musical factors that influence your relationship with it. So certainly your knowledge or your connection with particular artists or composers would certainly enhance that kind of emotional engagement with music. Yes, that's certainly one factor. However, uh, what comes up more often is that this concept of a soundtrack to your life. So there are major life events, there are pieces of music that people will associate with those events, so your personal experiences and the music that was around at the time. And also there's the music itself and the content of the music, the musical attributes. And we can't disregard that because that's a very important part of our relationship with our music. A good tune means something on one day. If it's raining one day and it's sunny the next day, it means something completely different. Absolutely, and I think that is also true of the individual. So between individuals and also within the individual, different pieces of music can have different effects at different times. And this lends the lie to um, th this concept that there must be one type of music or certain, like the Mozart effects are a great example of this, that, that it will just be uh, inherently calming and relaxing for, for everyone. And that, that's just not the case. This personal complex relationship with music is what counts and that can change from day to day. The Mozart effect is one particular piece of Mozart, I can't remember exactly what its number is, but people who have played that become more intelligent, well, supposedly. That was that was commonly, in, in the original uh, researchers' defence, I think it was, it was always misrepresented. So they, they, they didn't make a particular claim that it was Mozart's music per se that had this particular effect. So uh, Mozart goes out the window a little bit. And the particular effect was uh, something they called spatial intelligence. So it was one particular cognitive task that people showed an improvement with in a music condition compared to a no music condition. So we might as well say it was the effect of music on that particular task. And since then, uh, it's been kind of blown up out of all proportion. What do you mean by cognitive? Just explain what cognitive means. A good example is, I guess, uh, things like distraction. So that will come into effect in lots of aspects and studies of music listening. So, for example, I'm particularly interested in, uh, say, positive effects of music on uh, the effects of uh, pain. Now, what we're talking about there is digging into the mechanisms that are underpinning the positive effects of music. We can demonstrate that listening to music might have a positive effect on certain aspects of the symptoms of pain. However, what are the cognitive mechanisms that, that underpin that? So one might be distraction. Are we focusing on pain? 
Are we being distracted from focusing on pain by listening to our music? How well are we distracted from the pain by our music? And is that increased by the greater connection we have with a, a particular piece of music? Now, pain, as we know, is very complex, mm -hmm. and, and so is music. So what are you finding out? Well, some work I've already done at Glasgow Caledonian was look at the content and structure of music that has been found in my colleagues' research on acute pain uh, to reduce the uh, overall pain intensity and also increase feelings of control over pain. And again, that's an acute setting. So I was very interested in that study in that the focus of the study was that people preferred the music they brought along to those studies. And there's a wealth of evidence out there that will suggest that the fact that you like the music is a key factor. However, we can't throw the content of the music away because the content of a piece of music you listen to has some very direct effects on you. Now, that might be something that influences your preference for music. You might like loud and raucous music. It can have very direct effects on our arousal levels, for example. So things like the startle effect in our autonomic nervous system are directly affected by the intensity of music and music with a very fast tempo. So we need to think about these things in the context of your preference for certain music and how that very complex situation, as you say, might be unpicked so we can better understand these key mechanisms. That's Don Knox. Well, it goes without saying that music is not just for listening to, but for performing. Since 2013, Gartnavel General Hospital's Cystic Fibrosis Service has been collaborating with Scottish Opera to explore whether learning classical music singing techniques can improve the well-being of cystic fibrosis patients. Gareth Williams is the composer with the Breath Cycles project. Cystic fibrosis is genetic and incurable, and it's a disease that causes mucus to build up in the lungs. So you can imagine the kind of health complications that would arise. So we get lung infections are very common, um, breathing problems, um, shortness of breath, coughing. And over time then, the lungs tend to scar and, and get damaged and lead to life-threatening complications. So where does a composer fit into this? Before I came to Edinburgh, I was at Scottish Opera. I was the composer in residence there for three years. And before that, actually, I was, I was writing a lot of operas. It just seemed to be somewhere where I found I, I could really scratch an itch, I suppose. I found it really interesting to work with those big, powerful voices. And there is a tradition. When I think of operas like La Travia, where um, uh, Violetta has tuberculosis her, and her lungs are in terrible condition, but she still soars gracefully just before her death and, and, and her vocal fireworks go off. Or, or Mimi, for that mm -hmm, matter, yeah, in La Boheme. Yeah. There, there is a kind of trope there where, where these people can you know, rise above their symptoms to create something glorious as a swan song. And I wonder, was it that? I think there is something there that made me think, well, I'd actually like to explore what happens when you put someone with a genuinely fragile voice and a genuine health condition with their lungs in an opera? Because singing requires the lungs and the diaphragm and your breathing parts, if you like, have to be perfect, have to be Formula One. Absolutely. I, I've, I often compare opera singers to almost like being the professional athletes of, of breathing and singing. They have a, that daily ritual of practice, of keeping, of keeping this, this instrument in their chest uh, in top health. And, and they can do remarkable things. But they can fill auditoriums. They don't use microphones. And they can cut across massive 100-piece orchestras. 
it's kind of remarkable. And but these voices are something of a, of an artifact from the past, aren't they? But but the, when you actually are in the same room as one, it's kind of it's quite staggering. It's like standing in the ring next to a boxer. Completely, yes. So, okay, tell me, we have the Formula One of voices on the operatic stages of the world, and then at the opposite end, we have people with cystic fibrosis. So how do you bridge that gap? On our first day of meeting people with cystic fibrosis, before we started on a journey of giving singing lessons and starting to teach some vocal techniques, uh, I asked them all to sing and hold a note for as long as they absolutely could. Would you like to try? Go on then. Okay, I'm going to count you through. I'll give you your note. So let's have yeah. a nice... Uh, uh, and there it is. The little, it just disappeared like a spirit at the end. Even there, I mean, you, you, you didn't prepare very well, or did no, you? I didn't. You, I didn't. I'm slouching. I'm leaning on my Diaphragm was yeah, not engaged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think singing is just beautiful breathing yeah. because it is, it's all prepared. That's the secret of the whole thing. So it's in your posture and it's in your diaphragm. So posture wise, somebody once told me that if you want to see how breathing should be done, you should look at a newborn baby. It's not the, the chest going out and taking up the breath. It's below it's right the diaphragm. Here. It's all controlled from mm -hmm. there. And we just gradually get terrible at breathing as, as we grow up. And it, it ceases to be a natural thing. And I'm terrible at breathing. I think I'm always just trying to kind of keep my middle in a little bit when you should really let it all hang out I suppose but I, I do have a I have a very close friend with cystic fibrosis she said that on a very bad day it feels like she has to remind herself how to breathe altogether and I, that sounded like a lot of hard work that's a difficult concept to get hold of isn't mm -hmm. it it didn't feel in any way like a natural subconscious thing it was something she almost had to be conscious of okay we're in the least medical scientific labs I could ever imagine because there's a lovely grand piano in there you also got your audience in this conference to do some vocal exercises. And there's no way that I'm going to do this by myself. So I'm asking Rowena, another, mu <laughs> another musician, to help me out with it now. Okay. This is easy. This was a little um, exercise we came up with just to get people to, into starting to sing. Uh, it's a call and response. So I sing, then you, you sing that back. And it's just to develop a sense of pitching, a sense of timing, but also just to start beginning work on, on developing lung function and developing your breath. So nice, big, long breaths. And this time I'm going to try and not to slouch or lean against anything. Yes, so so I'm going head forward, chin in, think about my diaphragm and it'll go okay. I hope so. I haven't played this in a while. You ready? Yeah. There have been some great operatic duos in the past. Paul Evans and Rowena Jacobs aren't amongst them. <laughs> I don't know, I'm impressed. I see potential. 
think when you go into a clinical space and you bring something kind of warm and fuzzy, that, that there is a huge effect. And, and Dr. McGregor and his staff said that, you know, on the days when, when there was singing in the wards, things did feel very different. And, and there was, there's a specialness in doing something like making music together. That's hard to quantify, actually. So does increasing people's breath power, if you like, through breathing properly and through singing, does that help their condition? From our pilot project, I can tell you that we had some really encouraging results. Most patients showed an improvement in lung function, which is good, but especially on the marker or the FEV1 marker, which is forced expiratory volume. So that's the amount of air you can blow in one second. And we found an increase there of 14% on average. Now, 5% would be considered a significant statistical result. So this is really encouraging. It's almost too good to be true. We were really shocked by that, that wonderful result. Uh, I know that they, they trialed a drug in the hospital around about the same time, which, which come up with the result of, a bit of, a, of an 11% increase. And that was considered a, a massive success. So we, we beat the drug that cost £200,000 a year, which I was very pleased about. <laughs> but I need to reinforce that we've been through this trial with 24 people. For medical results that are significant, we need to meet 330 people now over the next few years with cystic fibrosis to get to the bottom of what's really going on. And also, we need to extend our time. We, we, we did 12-week blocks and measured at the start and the end, but I'd like to double that now, so 24, so we really get a look and see what happens over a slightly longer journey. What's important about your study and what's important about the Scottish Music and Health and Wellbeing Network conference we're at today is that music has a very, very real role in medicine. My hope and dream out of this project is that someday singing and vocal techniques will be part of the way we think about and treat and care for people with cystic fibrosis and it could be part of their daily life. I want music to be as widely recognised as possible for its benefits to everybody's health and well-being. Composer Gareth Williams. And you can read and hear more about the Breath Cycle project at breathcycle.com. Don Knox again. My particular focus is on people listening to music because I think that's gaining, I guess, more importance nowadays where we have what we might call a soundtrack to our lives, where you have large collections of music, thousands and thousands of tracks, access to that kind of music all day, every day. And the evidence is telling us now that people are listening to music in very different ways. We rarely now sit down in a room and listen to music as a main activity. People are using music to accompany other activities in their everyday lives and it's used in a very goal-oriented way. So people are making complex decisions about the music they listen to to re achieve particular goals, that may be mood regulation, and, uh, and to accompany specific tasks. Supermarkets have been doing that for an awful long time, choosing what we call music, rubbish if you like, to alter our purchasing mood. Yep. There's, uh, there's some great examples. Uh, David Hargreaves and Adrian North have done some excellent uh, research in that regard. So I think some of their research has shown that if you play louder music, faster music, people move through supermarkets more quickly. In clothes shops for young people, the music they play in those settings is about projecting this identity, this lifestyle you might want to aspire to, and that's ingrained in, the say, the clothes you might want to buy as well. So that's linked to how you view yourself and you might want to be viewed. 
and there was some great uh, a great study by Northern Hargraves that looked at playing uh, archetypically French and German music while there were French and German wine on sale, and they noticed a significant effect on the amount of wine from each country that was sold while we're playing music from those countries. And maybe a subtle soundtrack of waves breaking on a shore underneath. Oh, yes. I think it's becoming increasingly important because we are starting to see evidence that music has significant effects on how we feel and how we behave. So the music you encounter in everyday life in public settings where the music might not be of your choosing can affect us and it can affect how we act. So people are starting to take an interest in what those effects might be and what the music might be to achieve a certain end. That's a good point because in your research, people who bring their own music in that they think is their favourite music is one thing. But if you prescribe, if you like, your music, what you think is going to help, is there a difference there? Well, that's really important because that's part of research I'm trying to develop at the moment, that this concept of being able to prescribe music to an individual is absolutely not about your preconceptions about what that music should or shouldn't be. It is about that individual's needs and preferences. And again, that's a very complex relationship and we do not yet fully understand it. So the things I'm interested in are their particular preferences, familiarity and associations, but also the content of the music, its acoustical content, how loud, how intense it is, etc. And an emotional engagement with it and the emotion expressed by the music. So three very big things in the mix there already that, that, that combine to create a very complex and a sophisticated relationship. And that affects the, the, the beneficial effects of music in, in the studies we've seen. And I'm sure it's the same with you as me, as with everybody else, the music I would bring in today may not be the music I bring in tomorrow. Exactly, yeah. And in the range of music from the, the studies that I analysed the music from, from a few years back at Glasgow Caledonian, it was just an enormous range. And overall it was shown to have the same beneficial effects on the intensity of pain people felt and the focus on pain. And it ranged from Tchaikovsky to the Ramones. So really, really a broad range of music with functionally similar effects on the listener yes with me it would be Mahler Beethoven and Johnny Cash <laughs> there you go <laughs> but only late Johnny Cash all right okay yeah, yeah, yeah purist <laughs> how do you measure people's reaction to music what doesn't happen often is the more physiological uh, responses so things like your heart rate and galvanic skin response etc that's uh, something that's probably fairly confident enough to say that's not discredited in the literature but it really doesn't pin down uh, the causality of the effects of, of music listening. Having said that, there are some studies that look at salivary uh, cortisol which is a key indicator of levels of stress in the body. So those pseudo-experimental music listening uh, studies that I've seen certainly have proven that there are physiological indicators like cortisol levels that indicate uh, very clearly the beneficial effects of music listening. So we can use physiological direct measurements in that way, but often we might take uh, self-report measures of experienced stress or self-perceived well-being, mood, etc., which is often quite reliable data because it comes directly from the participant. 
And then we can take that another step further and do more qualitative studies where we do very in-depth face-to-face interviews and really dig into people's experience of music listening and underpin their experiences of their music listening and the beneficial effects it might have had. So people with pain conditions, they don't really have to wait for, for your results to come out. They could try music now, it's not going to hurt. Exactly. And I think the key thing is, and one thing we can say for sure, is that you can listen to a programme of music listening, preferred music of your liking, and that can have direct effects on the pain you may be experiencing, the symptoms of that pain. I think what needs work is, and again, this is something I'm, I'm particularly interested in, is, is moving the research on from acute pain to looking at how people manage the effects of chronic pain and longer-term effects. Uh, because I think that's a really important part of how might, people might build programmes of music listening into their everyday existing pain management strategies. Don Knox, and I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions and transcripts of Airing Pain from Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk. And you can read more about the subject of today's edition of Airing Pain in issue number 63 of our sister magazine, Pain Matters. Once again, all details are on our website. And finally, for this edition of Airing Pain, let's consider whether GPs and other health professionals would prescribe music for chronic pain patients in the future. Raymond MacDonald. There already are medical practitioners that are using music in clinical contexts. Now, they have developed their own way of working, they've developed their own practice, they have their own body of research to support its use. So there's no doubt that music is currently being used by medical practitioners in uh, explicitly clinical contexts. Whether or not music becomes used by GPs, the way in which specific drugs are prescribed for depression. I think we're a long way off that type of use of music. But I certainly think that in the not-too-distant future, music will be available for specific types of ailments, depending upon which situation you're in.